Chapter Three of the Real Oscar Wilde. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Everything I write is extraordinary," cried Oscar Wilde in answer to the question put by Mister Carson whether he considered one of his letters to Lord Alfred Douglas, which had just been read out, an ordinary letter. I do not pose as being ordinary. Great heavens! I think that reply gives an explanation, and the true one, not only of his epistolary style, but of his general conduct. What his friends set down to eccentricity, and his enemies attributed to the promptings of a mind diseased and unclean, was in truth merely a well-calculated pose. "'Why do you act like that?' asked a prefect of police in Paris of the poet Baudelaire, author of Les Fleurs du Mal, and the translator into French of Poe's tales. Pour épater les bourgeois, to astound the public, answered the poet. Most literary men pose as extraordinary, at least until their success, social and financial, is assured. As a young man, Lord Beaconsfield had an eccentric coiffeur, and wore extravagant waistcoats and jewellery. Barbie de Aurevilly used to walk about Montmartre in a cloak of red velvet. Catul Mendez was to be seen every afternoon sitting on the terrasse of the Café Tortoni in Paris, with his blonde hair falling down in ringlets over his shoulders. Balzac had a monkish cowl, and turned night into day. Victor Hugo dressed as a bluff sea-captain, and tried to look the part. In England today, in the twentieth century, we have men of letters of universal fame, who in dress and demeanour are most obviously seeking, à la Baudelaire, to astound the public. I supposed that it was in pursuance of this scheme of his, to pose as extraordinary, that Oscar Wilde used to talk in the very freest fashion about his father and mother. I remember that it struck me as peculiar that, only a few days after I had made his acquaintance, he should relate to me the gallantries of his late father, Sir William Wilde. It is true that the subject was broached as an illustration of the broad-mindedness of Speranza, Lady Wilde, the mother whom he worshipped. She was a wonderful woman, he said, and such a feeling as vulgar jealousy could take no hold on her. She was well aware of my father's constant infidelities, but simply ignored them. Before my father died, in 1876, he lay ill in bed for many days, and every morning a woman dressed in black and closely veiled used to come to our house in Merrion Square, and unhindered either by my mother or anyone else, used to walk straight upstairs to Sir William's bedroom, and sit down at the head of his bed, and so sit there all day, without ever speaking a word or once raising her veil. She took no notice of anybody in the room, and nobody paid any attention to her. Not one woman in a thousand would have tolerated her presence, but my mother allowed it because she knew that my father loved this woman, and felt that it must be a joy and a comfort to have her there by his dying bed. And I am sure that she did right not to grudge that last happiness to the man who was about to die. 
and i am sure that my father understood her apparent indifference understood that it was not because she did not love him that she permitted her rival's presence but because she loved him very much and died with his heart full of gratitude and affection for her footnote no one knew how deeply i loved and honoured her her death was terrible to me but i once a lord of language have no words in which to express my anguish and my shame she and my father had bequeathed me a name they had made noble and honoured not merely in literature art archaeology and science but in the public history of my own country in its evolution as a nation i have disgraced that name eternally i have made it a low byword among low people what i suffered then and still suffer is not for pen to write or paper to record my wife always kind and gentle to me travelled ill as she was all the way from genoa to england to break to me herself the tidings of so irreparable so irremediable a loss oscar wilde in de profundis End footnote. in a recent book about wilde it is remarked by the author who was formerly one of his intimate friends that while everybody knew who his father was god alone could say who was his grandfather now this is as inaccurate as it is unkind in writing my life of oscar wilde i was at particular pains to trace the lineage of my subject both on his father's and on his mother's side william wills wilde afterwards sir william wilde was the son of dr thomas wilde a surgeon in dublin by his marriage with miss finn a woman of very distinguished connections including the families of surridge and oosley of dunmore thomas wilde was one of the sons of ralph wilde who came over from durham in the middle of the eighteenth century established himself in roscommon as land agent to the sandford family and married a miss o'flynn the daughter of a very ancient irish family ralph wilde was the son of a durham businessman whose humble pedigree could be carried back many generations it is equally inaccurate and unkind of the writer referred to to allege that at one time in his career sir william wilde kept a small chemist's shop in dublin a clumsy invention in the career of a man about whose life owing to the distinction he acquired the fullest records exist the foundation of this story may be the fact that dr thomas wilde william wilde's father had a dispensary connected with his surgery exactly as most country doctors have today william wilde was born at castlereagh in 1815 and was educated at the royal school banagher already in his youth his taste for antiquarian research was exhibited he commenced his professional studies in 1832 in dublin and at an early age distinguished himself not only by medical science but by initiative and resourcefulness while still a medical student he wrote a very successful book describing a cruise in the mediterranean and the east on board the yacht crusader he continued his studies in london berlin and vienna and started in medical practice in eighteen forty one specialising as an eye and ear doctor in 
he earned four hundred pounds in his first year and gave the whole sum towards founding the institution originally known as st mark's ophthalmic hospital this hospital which was started in a disused stable in frederick lane developed in course of time into that fine institution the royal victoria eye and ear hospital in eighteen forty eight he published his book the closing years of dean swift's life in eighteen fifty one he married miss jane francesca elgie speranza and in eighteen fifty three he was appointed surgeon oculist in ordinary in eighteen fifty seven he was created chevalier of the kingdom of sweden and in eighteen sixty four he was knighted by lord carlyle it is certainly untrue to say that either his widow or his sons attached any social importance to this distinction such as it is and particularly with regard to oscar wilde is the charge of snobbishness and tuft hunting a false one he nowhere in de profundis declares that he had inherited a noble name in the sense of aristocratic descent what he does say is that his mother and his father had bequeathed him a name which they had made noble and honoured by their labours and achievements which is quite a different thing i knew oscar wilde very well for a great number of years and i never heard him once boasting of his aristocratic acquaintances as a matter of fact he was somewhat inclined to socialism one remembers his lines saying how in some things he is with those who die upon the barricades when i first met him in paris he did actually profess an elegant republicanism we were both at that time somewhat under the influence of victor hugo and les miserables i took him to one of hugo's receptions and as we walked home he repeated some of the passages from the descriptions in les miserables of the fighting in the streets of paris citoyen lui de ses enjolras ma mère c'est la république was a line he repeated more than once on our way to the quai voltaire we passed in front of the tuileries the blackened ruins of which were still standing in eighteen eighty three and pointing to them he said there is not there one little blackened stone which is not to me a chapter in the bible of democracy at victor hugo's that night there was present a polish princess of royal affinities who made a dead set upon the young irish poet but who as i noticed made little headway with him she was one of the most distinguished women in the smart set of the day in paris and when i afterwards mentioned this to him he replied that that might be so but that she struck him as being particularly tedious he seemed vastly to prefer speaking with auguste vacary the radical editor of le rappel to whom perhaps that description might with greater justice have been applied it is true that wilde and vacary had a topic in which both were specially interested namely the character and literary standing of the poet algernon charles swinburne swinburne had been staying in paris on a visit to victor hugo some short time previously and vacary who had been very frequently in his company was full of questions about him he did not seem quite to understand the english poet or to be able to place him and he listened with great interest to the anecdotes which wilde had to tell about him he wanted victor hugo to listen too 
but the master as usual after dinner had fallen asleep oscar wilde's remarks on swinburne were a tribute to the poet and in view of a decided soupçon of hostility amongst his listeners to some extent a defence also i remember his emphatic repudiation of the suggestion that he was in the habit of taking too much to drink we all thought said vacary that that must be the explanation of his extraordinary excitability while he was here his language was torrential he jumped about comme un carp there was no holding him he made the master feel quite nervous and i don't think any of us were very sorry when he left wilde said of him that he was of so excitable a temperament that the mere contemplation of a glass of wine was sufficient to throw him into a bacchanalian frenzy and he implied that any derogation of him would be keenly resented by any lover of english literature i remembered wilde's defence of swinburne when several years later i had reason to understand from a personal experience with what horror swinburne regarded him after his disgrace and downfall yet in his youth swinburne himself had been stigmatised as a corrupter of morals a stigma from which he never lived to clear himself it was on account of this old prejudice against him that the nobel prize for literature was never awarded to him in france this omission by the way was considered so gross an injustice that a number of french poets headed by pierre louis the author of aphrodite had decided by way of protest to publish a volume of poems to be entitled ver offert à monsieur swinburne and so wrote pierre louis to me just as the first contributions were coming in swinburne died there was another passage in this letter which contrasting as it does with the remarks i heard that evening at victor hugo's house i want to quote you have had an immense loss in england this year swinburne wrote louise he was the greatest living poet when i think that he used to write to me when i was nineteen years old that he contributed to my first review and that during twenty years i have been allowing him to die without going to see him i cannot console myself this pierre louise is the gentleman whose name came up at the old bailey during the queensbury trial with reference to his translation into french verse of a letter from oscar wilde to one of his friends a letter by the way produced by wilde himself this letter had come with others into the hands of a gang of london blackmailers who had attempted to extort a large sum of money in exchange for it from its author oscar wilde used to relate with great gusto how he faced them defeated their object and recovered the document with little or no expense i heard him telling this story several times before the matter came into court and it certainly did not appear that he was in any way ashamed of this letter or had had any suspicion that it might be used against him as a presumption of culpability his version of its recovery was given in court as follows asked by sir edward clark to relate what happened he said that a man called at his house in tite street to inform him that this letter a copy of which had been sent to mr beerbohm tree was not in his possession his name was allen continued the prosecutor i felt that this was the man who wanted money from me i said 
i suppose you have come about my beautiful letter if you had not been so foolish as to send a copy of it to mr beerbohm tree i would gladly have paid you a very large sum of money for the letter as i consider it to be a work of art he said a very curious construction can be put on that letter i said in reply art is rarely intelligible to the criminal classes he said a man has offered me sixty pounds for it i said to him if you take my advice you will go to that man and sell my letter to him for sixty pounds i myself have never received so large a sum for any prose work of that length but i am glad to find that there is some one in england who considers a letter of mine worth sixty pounds he was somewhat taken aback by my manner perhaps and said the man is out of town i had applied he is sure to come back and i advised him to get the sixty pounds he then changed his manner a little saying that he had not a single penny and that he had been on many occasions trying to find me i said that i could not guarantee his cab expenses but that i would gladly give him half a sovereign he took the money and went away was anything said about a sonnet asked sir edward yes replied oscar wilde i said the letter which is a prose poem will shortly be published in sonnet form in a delightful magazine and i will send you a copy of it as a matter of fact the letter was the basis of a french poem that was published in the spirit lamp yes it is signed pierre louis is that the nom de plume of a friend of yours yes a young french poet of great distinction a friend of mine who has lived in england at that time oscar wilde could no longer call pierre louis a friend of his because at least a year previously the two had quarrelled and had agreed not to know each other any more i am not sure what the quarrel was about but at that time wilde had a good many enemies in paris his eccentricities were being malevolently commented upon and i fancy that pierre louis whose brother occupied a very high post in the diplomatic service was recommended by him to cease an acquaintance which might injure his social prospects poor wilde had for years seen himself abandoned by his friends and i remember that just before i first met him a very old oxford friend of his who had come to great public honours since had written to him to say he wished to have no more to do with him referring to this lachage he said to me apropos of the letter in which his whilom friend closed their relationship what he says is like a poor little linnet's cry by the roadside along which my measureless ambition is sweeping forward he took pierre louis congé in a much less philosophical spirit and indeed was very angry about it i remember his telling another friend and myself what had happened and saying i really regret now that i never learned the use of arms so that i could call people out who write me letters like that to sting me and punish them for their temerity End of chapter three